Johnny Cash once described country music as being made of emotions, of love, of breakup, of love and hate, and death and dying, mama, apple pie, and the whole thing. I'm Tennessean country music writer Cindy Watts. Welcome to Country Mile, the USA Today Network's new podcast series exploring the evolution of one of America's truest art forms through the stories of some of the genre's biggest names. I'll show you how good he is. He's sponsored by Carter Vintage Guitars in uh-huh. this town. Great, great sponsor. But just, and Chris is so good on the microphone. But so just in case you wanted to t- drive everybody to the Tennessean, uh-huh. to, to drive them to your show, give me a give me a spot right off the top of your head. For, for Carter Vintage Guitars? No, no, for tech to, to the Tennessean. To the Tennessean? Yeah, the Tennessean to advertise your show or something. If they were your sponsor, <laughs> if they were the sponsorship. I feel a little on the spot now. Let me think, let me think <laughs> Come on, it. you got it. Well, you know, as far as the, ten- as far as the Tennessean goes in country music, yeah. Johnny Seibert. Did anybody here know Johnny Seibert? He was Carl Smith's steel player on all those classic records back in the 50s, and he worked as a security guard at the Tennessean for about 20 years. And so, when I started playing steel guitar, I learned how to play the steel guitar thanks to the Tennessee, and not from reading an article about it, but for going down to the security department in the back of the Tennessee and knocking on the door with a lap steel with me. And I said, are you Mr. Seibert? And he said, yeah. And I said, can you show me how to play this thing? So there's so much that you can learn each and every week in the Tennessee, and not just from reading, but also from uh, the wonderful staff, be it the security department, all the way up to the editor-in-chief. And you know what, Chris Gross, What's if that? it's good enough for Johnny Seibert... It's good enough for me. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to Country Mile, a podcast series brought to you by the Tennessean, part of the USA Today Network and Belmont University. Today's episode features Grammy-winning Marty Stewart and Chris Scruggs, a musical force from one of country music's most talented families, talking about the importance of preserving the history of country music and passing it on down to the next generation. We're surrounded by history, recorded at RCA Studio B, The room is thick with its own stories about Elvis Presley, Dolly Parton, and Willie Nelson, who are on the long list of artists who recorded in the space. So the history is so rich. What is your favorite stories about Studio B? About Studio B? Well, probably the first place that I ever recorded in Nashville was here with Lester Flatt and his band when I first came to town in 1972. And uh, there was an engineer named Al Pachuki who engineered lots of great records. And uh, again, I was just thrown into the Navy, so I had nothing, no, no reference. I, it's my first time ever standing in a formal studio. And Les, there was some song that came up that Lester looked at me and says, why don't you handle the intro on this one? I went, okay. And it scared me to death because I didn't know if I was supposed to count it off or just get into it. And I went into Al Pachuki. I said, uh, am I supposed to count, count it off? He said, just get out there and do it. <laughs> but... Uh, it was it was trial by fire, but it didn't matter. It didn't matter. It was I love the studio. And the other happy memory years later, me and the superlatives came down here and did a record called Ghost Train Studio B Sessions. And uh, the the studio hadn't been used formally in a while again. And I just had this feeling: good band, good songs, the right environment, and this this place will come alive that fast. And it did. And right after that, on the heels of that record. I made a record on, uh, produced a record on Connie, Connie Smith, my wife, and that uh, went, and I actually, I guess it was seven or eight years ago now, 
And I love that record. I mean, this was the first place Connie ever recorded. Her first song was recorded in this studio, too. So full circle, full circle. Chris, what about you? It's like when you walked in with your son earlier, I heard you say, let me tell you about this place. Yeah. Like when you think about Studio B, what do you think about? The first thing I think about is the Everly Brothers, because that's a lot of the music I grew up on was the Everly Brothers. And then my son, who I came in with, you know, he's grown up listening to that music as well. Um, in fact, we were listening to it on our way over here just now. Um, I remember the first time that I worked in here, which was in 2001, you know, a couple of years after Marty made his studio beat debut. It was with BR549. We were doing just a little thing, uh, recording for school groups would get to come in and, and sing on top of us. And we did uh, All I Have to Do is Dream. And uh, just sitting in here and, and playing that music, you know, with no headphones on, just five musicians just sitting in a circle playing really quiet like that. It just felt so good. And it's one of those places where whenever you work here, you think, can't we just make records like this all the time? <laughs> like, why do we have to go to these other places and put headphones on and be isolated? Can't we just sit in a room together and make music with one another? And then we went in to listen to the playback. We thought, wow, that sounds pretty good. And they said, let's turn on the, the, the echo chamber. And they turned it on, and that, that reverb came in that you've heard on all those Everly Brothers records and, and Eddie Arnold records and Jim Reeves records and Connie Smith records. And it just sounded magic. It sounded famous, yeah, that's as right. you know, Marty Stewart would uh, describe it. What does famous sound like? Exactly like what he's talking about. I'll tell you the record. There, there's this system here, and I think if they still do it when they run tour groups through here, they play snippets of songs that have been recorded here. And the one that grabs me by my heart and just sets me down and makes a puddle out of me is Skeeter Davis's uh, record called "The End, End of the It's the End of the World." Mm -hmm. And from the first notes, it comes on. It sounds so famous. It sounds like eternal, leads you know for the ages. And it's just one of those perfect moments in time that was captured in this little room right here. about the country music you first heard that really grabbed you, that really captivated you? Down in Mississippi, in Philadelphia, Mississippi, where I grew up, we had a great radio station. Still on the air, WHOC, a thousand watts of pure pleasure. And WHOC <laughs> signed on every morning with country music. And, of course, there was the farm report, who was in the hospital, and the funeral home report. And all morning was country music. And at noon, they played an hour of Southern gospel music. The afternoon was rock and roll, top 40. Late afternoon was soul. And they signed off with easy listening music. And I thought everybody's radio station was that way. And I listened. I was like a sponge. I loved music so much. But it was country music that really touched my heart. And uh, there were songs that I can't, The first two records I ever had was a Flat & Scruggs record and a Johnny Cash record. But there were songs that came out of this town like Big Bad John, Wolverton Mountain, uh, Long Black Veil, those kind of songs that told stories and 30-minute uh, television episodes that would come out of Nashville down to our region, the Porter Wagner Show, the Wilburn Brothers Show, Flatten Scruggs, Johnny Cash, Del Reeves Country Carnival, those kind of good old Nashville music. They were like 30-minute visits in like parade fashion on Saturday afternoons that I love the people that sang those songs. They look like folk heroes to me. They they've felt like family I love their costumes. I love the pageantry of it all. I love the, the messages in their songs. And it was those 
that kind of that era of country music that really spoke to my heart because I could hear what they were singing about and look into the face of my grandma or grandpa and, and tell what they were and relate. They sang stories that even as a child I related to, and I loved those big tales. I really did. Give me an example of the big tale. Well, Long Black Veil. That song captivated while everybody was listening to the Beatles. You know, when I was, you know, four or five years old, I was listening to Long Black Veil. She walks these hills in a long black veil. She visits my grave when the night winds well. And uh, Johnny Cash had a song called uh, Mr. Lonesome that was on his second record. I've got no fire inside of me. Inside of me can't be the man I try to be. Old Mr. Lonesome hanging round. I love those kind of songs that were just kind of had a teardrop in them. I don't know why as a kid, uh, but that's kind of the songs I love. You brought up Flats and Scruggs. Tell me about the first time you heard. Do you remember the first time you heard Chris's grandpa play? Well, Flat and Scruggs were just kind of part of the atmosphere down in the South because they had that Martha White television show. And they had a show that staged out of Jackson, Mississippi. So once a week, they came on. And boy, you're talking about the Flat and Scruggs band and, and Porter Wagner's band and the Wagon Masters. They were the two groups that came on my television set that I felt like I'm going to know those people one day. I wish I could carry their guitar case. I, I wish I could dress like that. I like the way they, they wear their hair. I like the way, you know, everything about those bands I love. But there was a blues element in um, the Flat and Scruggs band, Uncle Josh especially on the Dobro, Uncle Josh Graves. It sounded like what the guys up on the street corner in Philadelphia, Mississippi, the Busy Bee Cafe played. And Uncle Josh had a hat that, you know, was like this. He was the comedian and one of the comedians in the band. But he, had, he, just, had a, he just had a visual lick going, and he had a gold tooth. And so did those guys at the Busy Bee Cafe. I just thought everything about that, it confused me because he was a white guy and that was a black guy, but they were both playing the blues. And that's the first time I remember hearing the blues. And, and Flat and & Scruggs music had a charge about it. It was like horses coming at you. And it was, it was exciting. It was on fire. It was vibrant. Um, and I loved everything about it. Chris, do you remember the first time that you heard their music i mean or does it go back so far that it's just in well, your fabric I, you know honestly i didn't grow up listening to a lot of the bluegrass side of things i grew up listening more to a lot of the old country music uh with uh, my mother uh, gail davies who's a mm -hmm. country singer a lot of the music i heard growing up of that old era was carl smith webb pierce hank snow farron young ray price uh jim reeves the everly brothers don gibson uh, a lot of the music that was more on that side of thing. You know, I'm looking around the room, I'm seeing all these old amplifiers. You know, it was more the music that was cut, mm -hmm. you know, using those things. In fact, uh, I think that's part of what's so special today about B is that so much of the old gear is still here. You know, I look over and I see the, the vibraphone over there and I think about he'll have to go Jim Reed. That's the one, isn't it? That's the one. That's the one. That, uh, that Steinway piano back there. And I think about Last Date, Floyd Kramer. I just saw a picture I'd never seen the other day of Grady Martin sitting in front of that Ampeg amplifier. And I've seen that amp here for years, and I didn't know that it was, you know... Part of the team. That it was, yeah, yeah. part of the room. But, uh, and as far as stories go, you know, there's the stories within the songs of country music, and then there's the stories just around the mythology of the people that made it. And just sitting here in this room and looking around and, and looking at so many of the, you know, the uh, keyboard instruments and the uh, amplifiers, you know, I just, 
I think about the people that use those instruments to make so many of those uh, memorable moments. When you, what comes to mind? It's like when you think about those memorable moments, it's like. Well, I think about, uh, I think about bassist Bob Moore uh, practicing karate in this room with Elvis Presley. <laughs> that, for one, comes to mind. <laughs> um, flipping Elvis, you know, and then Elvis flipping Bob. I don't think that happens on a lot of master sessions these <laughs> days where the biggest star in the world and the session musicians are throwing each other across the room. Um, and that's, you know, you mentioned there was a playfulness you know, to the, the music of Flatt and Scruggs, and there was a, a, a friendly, lighthearted quality to it. And I think that maybe music today has lost a little bit of that. And the people then, uh, you know, 15, 60 years ago, that that was in their hearts and that was reflected in their music too. And that's why, that's probably why we're still talking about it today. Chris and I talk about this a lot. We, we absolutely revere and honor those guys that made records in this room, the musicians. And one of the things that I that I so love about those guys is, you know, that was probably Grady's office right over there. You know, Connie always said, I sang over there. The background guys, were, there was a station for everybody. But the thing that came forth from those stations, those guys poured their hearts out. But the thing that was so genius about them, they gave every artist their own sonic identity. So when you drop the needle on the record, you knew that, you could tell if it was Grady playing, but you could also tell who the singer was. And there was a sound, you know, take Waylon Jennings, for instance, you know, at, at that era. They gave Waylon a sound. They gave Porter Wagner a sound. They gave uh, keep go, help, the Everly Brothers a sound. Mm-hmm. And, you know, th- just on and on and on, they gave everybody an identity. And so there's a big debt of gratitude owed to those fellows for that. When we first started talking about doing this podcast, you said that you wanted to talk about the importance of country music and kind of passing it on down and the importance of passing it on down. And what does that mean to you? Like, I've thought about it a lot. Um, I, I cannot come up with any reason why Lester Flatt would, would have hired a 13-year-old chimpanzee <laughs> to go in, on the road with him because, you know, there were certainly probably better kid musicians out there than me, but he, but he probably saw something in me that I, that I didn't see in myself. And as time has gone on, I learned to appreciate that. Same with Johnny Cash. He did the same thing for me. Pop Staples did the same thing for me. So many people invested that in, inside of me. And, and the life lesson in that was it, you, you can only hold it for so long, and you must pass it on. That's the beauty of it is passing it on. And I can't think um, of anybody on planet Earth that I would trust country music in the heart and hands of more so than Chris. I respect Chris so much because he has he has served his time. He's honored all the old characters, all the old oak trees. But uh, people look to him now. And I always go back to, to the analogy of Preservation Hall. And the first time I went to Preservation Hall in, in New Orleans, there was a lot of traditionalists playing jazz. But it was, it was so relevant and so fresh and so now. But it was presented in a way, if you'd never heard jazz before, you were being introduced to it in a very palatable way. But if you were a staunch jazz fan, you were also hearing something that you loved. And so either way. But that's Chris. That's Chris Scruggs' role in this town at the moment. I've always thought that what he does on his radio show, what he does uh, with his band, Stone Fox Five, around town, uh, those are like Preservation Hall moments to me concerning country music. 
And uh, the beauty of Chris Scruggs is he could play metal music, he can play jazz, he can play country music of any denomination. But his heart stopped about 1954, three. Maybe somewhere in that. <laughs> place, yeah. If you really want to get to his heart, there, there, he's parked there. He could do anything. But he comes at it from that. He educates and entertains in a beautiful way. And I love Chris as a man and as a statesman. Uh, but that's that's who he is, and and this is full circle because I come to this room. Lester Flat handed it to me. It's wonderful to share it with Chris and Ben Scruggs. His son was sitting over there, and Ben Scruggs is right behind us. He's going to be another one. Just you know, move over. Here he comes. That's some responsibility. Wow. He's laying in well, your lap you, there. Here, here's the five bucks. <laughs> <laughs> how does how does that feel? I mean, do you feel that way too? Well, I mean, anything I do as far as country music goes or any, I feel very lucky in that I feel like I don't really work for a living. I just get to do what I love and everything I do comes from a place of love. So um, I I try just to focus on that, uh, on that part of it is just to do things that I love and to uh, pay tribute to things that I love. And then anything good that happens beyond that is, uh, that's just gravy. Marty, we did a story um, a couple months ago uh, for your Late Night Jam, where we talked about the history of Lower Broadway mm-hmm. a little bit. That story got so much feedback, and a lot of the feedback was, man, I want to hear more stories about what Marty remembers from Lower Broadway when he was, you know, 12 years old, playing down there. Can you can you share some of your memories of what Lower Broadway was like? Well, the first night I got off the Greyhound, the Greyhound station was kind of across the street a little bit from the Ryman back in 1972. So I, I rode a bus up here from Philadelphia, Mississippi, to uh, hook up with Roland White, who was in Lester's band. And Roland was supposed to pick me up, and I was going to go on the road with Lester and those guys that weekend just to visit. And Roland was late. He would got caught up in a jam session somewhere and for, kind of lost time. <laughs> and so I thought I was maybe at the wrong at the wrong place. And so I walked around the corner, and there was the Ryman Auditorium. And it leveled me. I mean, I remember crying, looking out, going, man, there it is. There it is. And even though it was weary and in disrepair, I thought I belonged behind those doors. And I had a feeling I was about to go behind those doors somehow. But around it, Lord Broadway was, you needed a tetanus shot just to look at it back in those days. (laughs) (laughs) It was awful. I mean, there was peep shows everywhere. You know, it was just like edgy transients coming and going. Uh, but the absolute truth of the matter, while I was waiting on Roland that night, looking around, uh, there was steam coming up from a manhole down there. And there was a guy standing in the midst of that steam playing his harmonica and singing Pins and Needles in My Heart by Roy Acuff. And it was like a ghost or something. And up and down Lower Broadway, of course, Ernest Tubb Record Shop was there. Lion Ball's Restaurant was a big gathering hole for hillbillies and, you know, late night people. Uh, characters all around town. City View was this guy that wore an overcoat all year long, like a navy pea coat, who lived on top of Tootsie's. Uh, Junior and Cowboy Junior and Muscles were characters that came backstage at the Ryman all the time. Goober, the knife salesman. <laughs> I mean, it was just people like that all up and down Lower Broadway, and it was they were all treated like family. That the Opry stars and of course Tootsie's. But all those Opry stars treated those characters like family. They didn't pick on them. They didn't, you know, make fun of them. They just kind of loved them and, you know, helped them along. And uh, they probably knew more about us than we knew about them. But I loved the scene. 
because Saturday night in Nashville, man, it was still the Grand Ole Opry was the Grand Ole Opry. And it was the air castle of the South, and it was the mother church of country music, even though it was weary and disrepair. It was the Grand Ole Opry. And people would line up around the, all around the block, you know, to get in that show. And I loved it. And when we would come in off the road and I had, you know, 30 bucks in my pocket to the record store I went and to Margaret's Steakhouse I went for you know, to see Chi-Chi, the waitress, who would give me extra thousand dollars because she thought I was cute. <laughs> so now how old were you when you were doing 13, all this? 13, 14. So you rode a, a bus here when you were? 13. Wow. Yeah. But that was the Nashville that I shook hands with. And, and uh, it, it just felt like home. It was the it was the, it was the destination of all those TV shows and those records that I'd heard. I didn't want to go to L.A. and I didn't want to go to New York. I wanted to go to Nashville, and there it was. Can you talk about watching it transition? I mean, you know, now you know Lower Broadway is you know this famous strip known for beer and bachelorette parties and that tractor that tows people around <laughs> while they scream. Um, what do you remember about it? Well, the thing about the transition, that there was a point, you know, that the, 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 the talk was they were going to tear the Ryman down. And I went, uh-uh, uh-uh. And so I went to Bud Wendell, who was uh, uh, the head of the Opry at that time, but he was, a chair, he was the CEO of Gaylord. And, and Bud had been the general manager at the Opry one time, because, and I knew he loved the cast of the Opry. And I think Amy Lou jumped in, and there was a couple other people, but we went and said, Bud, what can you do about this? Because if I remember right, they were going to tear the building down and make a little chapel out of Opryland out of the leftover bricks or something. Nice. And so Bud went behind the corporate curtain, and when he came out, we had the grand, the Ryman still. And I got to cut the ribbon, be one of the people that cut the ribbon on the reopening of the Ryman, play the first show there. So that was a big save. And I look at it now, I go in there now, if they build much more, the stained glass windows won't have any light coming through them. But, you know, that's just, it's a growing pain. Lower Broadway's Hillbilly Bourbon Street, that's what I see it as now. <laughs> it's something you put up with to play the Ryman. Um, but congratulations to everybody who's making, you know, all disposable money. They're just printing money down there. So good for all those people that stuck it out all those years. But for those of us who have been here, you know, a long time, it's like I, I kind of miss my old town. We hope you are enjoying our Country Mile podcast. Don't miss your all-access pass to country music news with the Tennessean's mobile app. Download the Tennessean app for free in the App Store or Google Play Store. This podcast is brought to you by the Tennessean, part of the USA Today Network in partnership with Belmont University, where students can study music and music business in the heart of Music City. Or they can choose from more than 95 other fields of study. To learn more, visit belmont.edu. Coming next week is a very special CMA Awards episode with Entertainer of the Year nominee Garth Brooks and New Artist of the Year nominee Ashley McBride. Of course, you put in a lot of time on Lower Broadway, too. Yeah. Oh, man, he helped cause the scene in Lower Broadway. (laughs) It's your fault. It's his fault. I started playing down there in the late 90s, so it was already sort of, it was in that that just starting to sprout up sort of world. It was uh, BR549 had already happened at... Roberts and Greg Gehring was playing at Tootsie's. This is before I was in that group, however. Uh, but it still felt a little bit like there were still some peep show places down there, and there was still a lot of, you know, derelict buildings that hadn't been, you know, occupied in years and years. And, it, it, you know, you didn't have the, the party uh, tractors yet. The other day we were driving through the country in Rutherford County. We drove past a farm, and there was a tractor. 
and my little boy Ben saw it and said, look, it's a tractor, but where are all the girls? (laughs) (laughs) So, (laughs) Uh, uh. native Nashvillian, 2019. Um, uh, Yeah, I mean, I've seen it change just in, you know, this in the last couple of decades. Uh, But uh, the big thing at that point was they had just opened up the the Gaylord Entertainment Center, as it was called. Is that that what it's called now? I don't even... The, the, where the, hockey, the hockey Bridgestone, Bridgestone Arena, yeah, um, and that sort of felt a little bit like there goes the neighborhood. But then they also, you know, they, they put the new Hall of Fame downtown, and that that felt nice to see this city that was gearing more and more towards sports and towards being a uh, you know an international city and you know a, a big to do place uh, to have a, a, a another place for country music uh, down there in that part of town. So I don't know, we we gain some and we lose some, you know. We, uh, one thing I think there's a lot of attention now towards traditional country music that maybe wasn't there 10 years ago uh, before this whole you know new Nashville thing started and before Broadway changed. So I think you know it's always a mixed bag and you just have to run with uh, with the good of, of what comes your way too. So was I think Demon, it's a good time. Was Demons Den? No, still it was already it was already Merchants was a club at that in there point. On the corner called Demons Den. That was already uh, Merchants Restaurant. Line Boss was already gone. Um, I was it was around the time of the tornado. <laughs> I started to ask what was in Demon's I Den. I couldn't. I never had the heart to look in there. Our courage, maybe. <laughs> so do you think that you can still find country music on I think Broadway? On Broadway? I think you can, if you go to Robert's Western World, you can. Uh, sometimes when you go to Layla's, you can. Uh, there's a few spots Rachel here Hester. and there. Rachel Hester at Robert's, yeah. Uh, her dad was Hoot Hester, who you know played on Nashville Now and on the Opry for years and years and she plays down there and does a lot of shuffles and a lot of western swing and you know a lot of just quality songs and it's always you know uh, top name players who just really want to go down there and play with her they're not down there just to play on broadway so she's one of the hidden jewels down there for sure these days uh but there there is still country music down there you just have to find it and you won't always you know luck out and, and find but usually you will i think if people go to roberts that's a that's always a safe bet if you want to hear country music i still stand by my statement Somebody asked me a couple of years ago, what's the most outlaw thing you can do in Nashville these days? I said, play country music. So there you go. I'd stand by it. But the good news is I backed Chris, Stone Fox Five, you know, those kind of hit, and what Kenny Vaughn does around town. Uh, you know, it's out there. You just have to know where to look for it, right? Yeah. Yeah, and uh, and I find that like with our show that we do, our Stone Fox Five show, we get a lot of people who come in because it was recommended to them. You know, so there's a lot of word of mouth. I think as far as what's happening in traditional country music around town these days, there's also everything that's going on at American Legion Post Eighty Two on Tuesday nights, the Honky Tonk Tuesday show out there, and that'll be you know uh, five years ago the place there's nobody in there. And now on a Tuesday night, the place is packed. And when you're on stage, it looks like a swimming pool full of cowboy hats spinning counterclockwise around the room. So, uh, so yeah, I think there's I think there's a lot of positivity happening for for country music in Nashville today. I'm more hopeful for it than I've been in a long time. The roots of it are alive and well. They truly are. I mean, if you if you go to a bluegrass festival or you go to you know uh, we see kids along the way, like the Morgan Rutherford opened for us in mm-hmm. Texas. She's as country, you know, as Tammy Wynette was when she first came to town. Those kind. And so they're out there and, you know, just getting heard is the next part. You are a predominant voice on the new Ken Burns documentary. You've seen all of it? Mm How did you feel when you watched it? Well, I felt like the cavalry came across the hill. 
concerning the subject we were just talking about, you know, flying the flag for traditional country music. We can use all the assistance we can get because it usually doesn't appear on, you know, the mainstream award shows or the, it doesn't get that kind of uh, voice anymore. Hardly ever. But the Ken Burns piece um, is 16 and a half hours worth of that. And all the, the thanks to him and his integrity, all of a sudden, I think three things happened in the Ken Burns piece. Uh, eight episodes, 16 and a half hours. All of a sudden, we're in the same air as the national parks and jazz and baseball and prohibition and Vietnam, all those other things as a culture were elevated in the mind. So three things happen, I think, for again, for the traditional country fan who thought they would never see such a thing, they're rewarded. For um, somebody out there in the world who's just never given country music much serious attention because it's been parodied or whatever, well, here's your chance you know, for, to let us state our case because you'll see as much integrity and dignity inside of this as jazz or ballet or classical music or any other part of the pantheon of the arts. And for new people that are playing country music, if you really want to know where it comes from and what it's all about, all the way to the bottom, you know, here's your chance to learn about what you're becoming a part of. So everybody wins. Everybody wins. And it's a, it's a beautiful film. I wish it were 200 hours. He could have kept going. He could have kept going. But they're in the history business. So it's, 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 a, good, it's a great piece. Have you seen any of it yet, Chris? I've seen a few bits and pieces of it. I haven't seen the whole whole film yet. But what what excites me about it is that I was, as I was saying a minute ago, about uh, like the honky tonk Tuesday shows that are going on here in town. That there's a lot of young people that are enthused by country music that maybe didn't know about it a couple of years ago, and maybe maybe they'd fall away from it in a couple of years. They'd move on to something else, you know, the next big thing. And I think that right now it's in a lot of people's hearts. And I think that with a film like this, it gives an importance in, a, in an academic perspective that will really set it in stone for a lot of people. You know, I think it's laying concrete uh, for a love of country music, for, you know, real country music, that, uh, that I think is timing out really well with a lot of people who are just interested in it, in it mm -hmm. at, this, at this point in time. So hopefully we'll see a, you know, a resurgence. We'll see a traditional country renaissance that'll maybe you know, do a lot of good for our style of music. Yeah. Marty, did you have, were there parts in that doc that spoke to you particularly that hit your heart? I've, I've championed and tried to get somebody interested in making a documentary on Jimmy Rogers, the father of country music, for a long time. Carter family has one. DeFord Bailey has one. Uh, you know, several of the Roots figures. But nobody is kind of taking the bait on Jimmy Rogers at this point. And it's a great story. It's an incredible story. Um, he, was, he, was a, he was a rock star, and he was our guy. But inside, of, I, think of, I think it's episode one, there's about a 45-minute segment that you could just simply lift out and put a little spare footage with, and we now have a great Jimmy Rogers documentary. And so that I, was, I loved. Um, they embraced the subject of the black influence on the roots of country music. People like Arnold Schultz, who uh, inf influenced Bill Monroe. T-Tot, the street singer who influenced Hank Williams. Leslie Riddle, who went alongside of A.P. Carter gathering songs. Uh, Rufus Payne, all those guys that, 
that spoke into the lives of the fellows we call, you know, the archangels and the master architects of country music now. That was dealt with. The women's role in country music and lack of respect sometimes or a lack of opportunity, that that was addressed. And so those were the three things. And there was a beautiful piece of footage of Johnny Cash and Elvis, just as young guys at Sun Records in a room listening to records together that I had never seen, like eight millimeter footage. It was worth the price of admission for the whole thing. Beautiful. Awesome. For people who might be listening to this and aren't familiar with Jimmy Rogers, can you introduce them? Jimmy Rogers and the Carter family uh, were stars of the Bristol session in 1928. Seven. Seven. And it was called the Big Bang of Country Music. Uh, there was always there was plenty of country music before then, but it was I would say the formal downbeat of the country music industry. And Jimmy Rogers was a singer from Meridian, Mississippi, America's Blue Yodeler. And the best way I know to describe him uh, was he was a very charismatic figure. Uh, very he was a stylized man, but his songwriting, uh, a lot of his songs dealt with trains. Hoboing, gambling, cheating, rambling, drinking, uh, sin, redemption, love, heartbreak, loss, mother, home. All of those themes that the empire of country music is kind of founded upon. Uh, Jimmy Rogers was the first one, in my opinion, to really formalize those and, and set those on top of the bedrock of which we built our, our industry. And according to the, every newspaper in the world, all of those themes are still relevant today. <laughs> and uh, so it's not a thing that goes out of style. He's not for the faint of heart. He's not for everybody, but he is an incredible story. He had tuberculosis, and it cut his life and his career short. He died in uh, the, a place called the Taft Hotel after a recording session in New York City in 1932, I believe it was. They put his body on a train and sent his body home to Meridian, Mississippi. And I read a newspaper account that said, not since the death of President Abraham Lincoln have so many mourners, well-wishers, fans, uh, line the tracks to shed tears, throw flowers, and say farewell to a national hero. There was basically a thousand miles of people to say goodbye to Jimmy Rogers. Wow. So he was our first superstar. Who's important to you, Chris, like that? Jimmy Rogers definitely does hold a special place in my heart, along with Hank Williams, uh, Bob Wills, um, a lot of the honky tonk stars of the early 50s, people like Webb Pearson, Carl Smith. I grew up hearing a lot of that music. And, uh, there were people that were kind of a, a special, special cloth that we don't have a, a lot of left in this world, you know. Um, like, like in what way? They were, they were people who who came from very modest beginnings, and they they ended up by playing their folk music, you know, which was not intended to be entertainment for the masses. You know, it was the music that the people played on the porch for entertainment before they had electricity and before they had Victrolas and television. And they, they brought it to the world, and it, and it brought them stardom, brought happiness to a lot of people. Everything about their celebrity was based on this ethos of don't get above your raisin, you know. Instead of going out and buying tuxedos and dressing sophisticated, you know, they'd buy yellow gabardine suits from nudies in Hollywood, you know. Uh, they, they kept that. Like Marty was saying about the, the street performers and the, the characters on Lower Broadway, the, the hobo types, you know, the Opry stars treated them with respect. You know, people who maybe one year would be invited to the White House to perform for a president, you know, and then the next Saturday night they'd be on Lower Broadway talking to a guy who shines shoes. Um, there was something that was down home about them. There was something about, like I said a minute ago, about the amplifiers in the room 
about this acoustic music colliding with technology. Um, and there was a special moment, you know, like, for instance, when Ernest Tubb came to Nashville and brought an electric guitar with him, uh, with, you know, a, someone playing electric guitar in his band. Uh, there was just something about that, that intersection between down home and, uh, you know, the bright lights of the city and celebrity. I don't know. It's just the whole story. Uh, it's, it's something that, that appeals to like in Jim, Jimmy Rogers. He was the father of country music, but he was also a blues man. He recorded with Louis Armstrong. You know, there's a little bit of everything in, uh, in the music of that era of country music. You know, there's, there's something that can connect to everybody there. One of the things I loved about all of those people we're talking about, too, is they brought their culture with them to this town. They brought their culture with them to the microphone. The guys from Kentucky, Bill Monroe, brought bluegrass sounds with him. The Texas guys brought Western Swing. You know, Johnny Cash brought his stories from Arkansas. Willie Nelson brought his stories, you know, on and on and on and on. You were required to bring an identity with you to town. Even down to the way that they dressed. Absolutely. You you look at the Bluegrass Boys early on, and they had those riding pants on. And then Ernest Tubb came to town with a band dressed like cowboys. Um, they were, they, they were, they never forgot where they came from and they always carried that with them. And you, and what I loved about those people is you, again, you could drop the needle or you could look at a shadow on the wall and tell who it was basically by the shadow or the sound of it. I I made the observation, I think it was last year when we were doing those dates with Chris Stapleton that any great country legend or country star, you should be able to draw a very bad picture of them crudely and anybody in the world should know who it is. <laughs> you know, you could do that like with Chris Stapleton and Chris Gross. And <laughs> you could do that with Marty Stewart, Willie Nelson. We're covered. On you know, you could draw like a stick picture of, you know, any great country artist and anyone who knows country music. And even those who don't that well should be able to look at it and say, you know, Oh, that's uh, that's Hank Williams or that's uh, that's Dolly Parton, you know, Characters, yeah, every single one of them. Folk heroes. I'm picturing a stick figure of Dolly Parton, <laughs> and what that might look like. Sticks and circles. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so, as we were kind of planning for this podcast, we heard a lot about the, the bus trips that you all take and how you sit on the bus and talk about country music history. What we're doing right now could be at 3 a.m. or 11 o'clock in the morning on the superlative bus because this is pretty much the talking about guitars and music. Uh, that's pretty much the conversation day in and day out on the bus, isn't it? Pretty much. If we could just get a, a TV in the room with the Western Channel with the sound down all the way. Just I got for that. Ambience. Got that. Yeah. What's on the Western Channel? Uh, it's a fashion show. We're always looking for fashion. Really? Western fashion. Look at the cut of that shirt. That's or right. Look at the, look that at the crease on that hat. Look at the embroidery on that. Roy Rogers, he's so cool. <laughs> on and on. Then you turn over to Turner Classic Movies and, you know, you look for photography. The black and white movies always suggest great photography. I love that. Um, who, who do you think right now, or do you think there's anybody right now that's kind of doing a good job of carrying the country music traditions? Forward? Chris Scruggs. Chris Scruggs. <laughs> uh, and I like what's happening, and I like what's happening with Lucas Nelson. Mm-hmm. Lucas Nelson. Um, all of these guys, um, Benny Haggard has a shot at it. And um, those characters right there, the thing I love about them, they all have the same problem. They have long shadows to emerge from. 
But in Benny's case and in and Lucas Nelson's case too, I see that they honor the flagpole and they honor honor their uh, their dad. But at some t- at some point, you know, you have to fly away from that and know that that's a big part of you. It's who you are, and it grounds you. But you have to just develop your own voice, and that's the thing that I love about Chris. You know, he he's he doesn't play the banjo very much. He he's, <laughs> he's uh, he you know he, he can talk to you all day about the steel guitar and or whatever else you want to talk about. And the Lucas the same way. I see him play with his dad, then I see him play with Neil Young, but then I see he and his band go out and do their own thing. And uh, it's 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 another side of the moon to country music, but that's good. Benny Haggard, you know, same thing, same thing. Was that intentional, Chris, to not play the banjo much? I just never had any interest in it, yeah. I was always interested in guitars, so. And then because of that, you know, steel guitar as well. So I, I was always attracted to electric music. I just like the sound of electric guitars, I guess. I guess a banjo sort of... Uh, fills that same space, you know, before there were amplifiers. You had that that bright twang that came out of a banjo with a resonator on the back. So I guess it's, it's all treble. It's all Try treble. to stay out of treble. <laughs> stay out of treble? Yeah. <laughs> you said something that the, other, that the other day. I saw a thing you were talking to Roseanne Cash about being able to, to st- step away from the, the great shadow that you come from, but still to be able to operate within that shadow with honor and dignity. Right. And I think everybody that you just mentioned does a, a really fine job of that. Well, we've all seen tragic stories in this town where the the, the kid never got beyond being daddy or mama's you know kid, mm-hmm. and they they traded on that, and that's always a, a, a sad ending to me. I love kids that come from that, honor it, and figure it out, and and go on to be individuals. You know, if I remember correctly, and actually I'm pretty positive I do. Like in addition to Chris. And and his son, before you had Chris, you had Paul Martin in your band, right? And I remember seeing videos of you bringing Paul's kids up to play with Absolutely. Them. March and, and Kale and Talent, uh, one of the daughters, and, and Texas. It's ridiculous. It is ridiculous <laughs> how good those kids were when they were just, I mean, little. We would use them on my TV show to play, like, session parts, you know, uh, parts that somebody played on a record that's really complex. When, you know, they were that tall, and they were absolutely astounding. And that family's. It, when I think about their house, I close my eyes. It just reminds me of a music box that just vibrates at all time. I love what they do. They're a wonderful family. And uh, the truth is, when when Paul left, when he came to work with us, we knew the very day he came to work with us, we would get a call one day that has that goes something like. The kids are ready to go now, and I have to go be daddy and do that. And so when that day came, we had no earthly idea who we would turn to. So Kenny Vaughn and Harry Stinson and I had a meeting at the house. And go, Any ideas? And we left with the idea of, well, call Chris Scruggs. Chris knows everybody. See if he knows anybody. And Kenny called me the next morning, and he said, Chris wants to talk to you. I went, about what? <laughs> he says, play it in the band. I went, well, that means we'll be joining Chris because that's how <laughs> it worked out. We joined Chris. and But this is the best version of the superlatives we've ever had. But, again, when those kids came through, I, it goes back to the way I was raised. Lester let me do it. And every time I see a kid, Connie and I look for kids that we can offer a word of encouragement or an opportunity to. And the Martin clan is, you know, they're just absolutely great. 
That's mm-hmm. always been a part of country music, too, is passing it on to the, the younger generation for hundreds of years. I mean, this music is a lot older than 1925 and 1927. And for a long time, you know, the musical traditions that we carry on now came from older people passing on their traditions to younger people, from showing them fiddle tunes, teaching them, you know, you know, 10 verses to an English love ballad that had been lost in England but was still alive in Appalachia because the old folks were kept handing it down to the younger folks. And I think that's uh, one of the most important parts of country music is that ability to, to share it with the next generation, you know, not to be threatened by the, the younger folks coming up, but to, to, to give it openly. And the passing on of a guitar, I would think, is, you know, one of the ultimate, the ultimate. Here it is. And I woke up one day and I had a lot of people's guitars that were given to me. And but with that was what Chris says, it comes there comes a responsibility. Or maybe it's self imposed responsibility. But I took those things seriously. And um but that's that's Connie talks about when you go to, to a church. If you don't see young people, it's it's out of balance because the the fact is that you have to have growth. You have to have growth. And there's a you know, there's a pecking order. In my mind, it was like the old Native American thing. You start out as a water boy and a scout, then you become a brave and a warrior, and you work your way up. If you're meant to be a chief, well, you become a chief. But that don't happen just overnight. And But having somebody that sees something in you early on that starts schooling you in those traditions and trusting those traditions to you, that's the beauty of the whole thing to me. You mentioned a collection of guitars. You you collect a lot of country music memorabilia. Yeah. <laughs> like how, how much? How much do you think you have now? At last inventory, I think there was over twenty thousand items, and they're serious items, seriously important items. Do you talk about what those seriously oh, important sure. items are? Um, Connie Smith. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, the piece that you wrote in the paper was around Jimmy Roger, one of Jimmy Rogers' guitars, Johnny Cash's first black suit, uh, the boots Patsy Cline was wearing when she lost her life, uh, Hank Williams signed and dated lyrics, handwritten, some of his costumes, you know, on and on, Merle Haggard's guitar. Um, we have A.P. Carter's guitar on loan in the, in the collection right now that was a part of those early 1930s recordings of the Carter family. Maddox Brothers and Rose Pieces, um, on and on and on and on. I saw a tweet from Brothers Osborne that they had, they were leaving your museum. Warehouse. Oh, I thought it was, your, they were leaving your warehouse. Warehouse, yeah. So is all that stuff there? Is uh, everything, the collections in Philadelphia, Mississippi, in a warehouse. We're working on a cultural center right now called Marty Stewart's Congress of Country Music. Some of it's underway, some of its funds are being raised for uh, it's a life sentence from here forward, <laughs> but I'm looking forward to it. I'm up for the job. But all those things are in Philadelphia right now, except for what's on. We have a, a, a traveling exhibit at Graceland right now, and there's a photography exhibit that just opened at the Birthplace of Country Music Museum in Bristol, Tennessee. Wow. Yeah. So how close are you to having that? Having well, the theater, uh, the, the old theater in Philadelphia was called the Ellis Theater. Uh, was donated to us by the Arts Council. So we basically have a city block. The theater is under renovation right now. Uh, the administration building is under renovation. It'll be ready in about a month. The warehouse is completely done. The boards are seated. Uh, I think it's, in reality, to get the elephant up out of the middle, the, the museum part, is probably three to four years down the road before we cut ribbon. Is that intimidating? 
No, but some mornings I wake up and go, what did you do? <laughs> uh, it's not intimidating, but it's, it's a lot of work. But I'm up for it. Very good. What else do you have going on right now? What do we have going on? Well, the Ken Burns thing is exciting. Artist in residence at the Country Music Hall of Fame in September. Uh, on September the 11th, the theme is The Pilgrim, re-release of The Pilgrim record with a book coming out around it, a uh, 20-year anniversary. Uh, September the 18th is Psychedelic Jamboree, cool 60s country show with Roger McGuinn and Chris Hillman and Connie Smith and Buck Trent and Old Crow Medicine Show and Jim Lauderdale and Kenny Lovelace and the Grand Ole Opry Square Dancers. And on the 25th of September is, is, is and Chris Stapleton and Pam Tillis are on the uh, Pilgrim Show on the 11th. And on September the 25th, the theme is Songs That Tell a Story. And our guests are John Prine, um, Dale Jett, heir of the Carter family, Brandy Clark, Doug Kershaw, and I'm forgetting some, Dallas Frazier. So that's, that's about songs. Wow. Yeah. So how long are those shows going to be? How long are they? Yeah. I figure they'll clock in between an hour 45 to two hours per show. That's a lot to fit in, that time frame. It is. Right there. But it'll move. It'll move. It yeah. sure will. <laughs> it sure will. What about you, sir? What are you excited about right now? Well, I'm excited about wrapping up this uh, new season of Friends and Neighbors. We've had a little time off the road this last week, and I've been in the studio trying to get as many of those done as I can because, you know, it, it broadcasts on Friday nights, and we're usually on the road at that time. So I try to stockpile as many episodes as I can while I'm, while I'm around town. Uh, I'm excited about this, uh, this big summer we're out, you know, with Marty. Uh, doing a bunch of, uh, we're spreading the gospel of country music to the outside world. That's right. Doing a bunch of shows with uh, Steve Miller Band, so we're playing for a lot of rock and roll fans, classic rock and roll fans, and trying to win them over to our style of music. And I think it's working. Yeah, yeah. they're taking. To hey, it. back to your radio show. Talk about it and tell what time it's on and all that. Yeah, nine fifteen on WSM following the Friday Night Opry. The show's called Friends and Neighbors with Chris Scruggs. It's hosted by me. It's sponsored by Carter Vintage Guitars, and it's called Friends and Neighbors because in every episode there's. Oh, somebody knocks on the door, and we have a special guest uh, stop in abruptly and sing a song with us. So it's just based on the the sort of uh, lighthearted, just country music get-together, uh, winging it attitude of a lot of the old WSM morning shows and, and a lot of radio stations around the country in the old days when they did live radio, and you'd have singers doing 15-minute spots every day of the week or you know once a week. So we're just kind of keeping that, that side of things alive, and it's a lot of fun. Well, guys, thanks so much for stopping by to chat. It's been our pleasure. Thank you for... I love this place, and thank you for letting us do it here. It made it all better, right? Absolutely. There's no better place to be than be. (laughs) Thank you for joining us on this episode of Country Mile. This podcast series is produced by the USA Today Network's Erica Whitney and John Garcia. And I'm your host, Cindy Watts. Theme music from KillerTracks.com. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and everywhere else podcasts are found. Be sure to rate and leave a review as well. For more in-depth coverage of country music, visit tennessean.com backslash countrymile.